Last week, we sat down with Washington College students and discussed the importance of acknowledging and talking about racial bias, inequality, and injustice on campus, as well as how to discuss them with others and continue to make the necessary changes towards further learning and growth for both current and future students to feel seen, safe, and heard during their experiences at the college. For part two of this two-part episode, I will be talking with Director of Intercultural Affairs, Carice Bates, and Assistant Professor of Mathematics, Emerald Stacy, to discuss what initiatives and programs are happening to help the WAC campus and surrounding community better understand and embrace one another's diversity, making underrepresented students feel seen and heard, and how and what you can do to better educate yourself to recognize a lack of equality as an active bystander. I am your host, Olivia Montez, and this is Washington College Weekly. Our first guest today is Carice Bates, the Director of Intercultural Affairs, Program Coordinator of Washington Scholars, and Advisor to the Intercultural Affairs Collective. Carice, welcome to the show. So first off, how would you describe your position at Washington College? Yes, I would describe my position as, people refer to me as diversity expert, but I don't like the term expert by any means, because I think when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, we're all learning together. So I more so view myself as the vehicle for students to learn about intercultural affairs and to create some harmony and to create awareness and to create education around intercultural um, differences Uh, diversity for students. And again, I serve as a resource for the student body as it regards to diversity, multiculturalism, interculturalism, inclusion, those various diversity aspects. So the elephant in the room here is the recent microaggressions and similar incidents that have happened. And it was made clear by several student-led organizations, including African Student Union, Black Student Union, the Honor Board, and Cleopatra's sisters, just to name a few, on campus who both through demonstrations and meetings as well as written declarations have been made making aware of this issue. What was vital to keep in mind when we approach and evaluate what to do next in terms of this issue, addressing it, and basically keeping the conversation going? Yeah, I will say the letter of demands was very eye-opening. The administration have heard, you know, things about improvement, but seeing it in writing in such an eloquent way, I think really was helpful in having the administration's ear and to actually know how to communicate the changes that needed to be made. It provides some direction for the administration. So it was clear, very eloquently written, and concise with the direction that students of color and other underrepresented students need to feel seen on campus. So I believe that the purpose for that was very eye-opening, and I believe that it truly helped start the process of change. As we all know or are aware of, change is slow. So sometimes we feel change is not being seen as fast as we would like it to be seen or that nothing's happening or things are still in limbo. But again, you know, change does not happen overnight. It takes a lot of collaboration, a lot of critical thinking, and a lot of 
open dialogue and conversations to understand what really needs to happen and what really needs to change. I will say that the administration has upheld their part with making sure that the demands are something that's not fell to the wayside. So as students in this, the campus community is aware, we had leadership changes. And with leadership changes comes, you know, the leader's way of implementing what they need, what they want to see, what they want changed. And I will say that the administration held fast to those letter of grievances and demands to make sure the new leadership was very much well aware of what's currently occurring. So during the search committee, the presidential interim presidential search was very aware of these letters of demands and wanted to make sure that we're adhering to them. Also, I will say senior staff and a lot of their thought processes with contingency planning always refer back to letter of grievances and, and demands and want to make sure that, hey, how does this fit? How does our next, contig- our next planning fit into what the students want and what they need? So another instance, the bias incidents have been updated. We will be announcing that on campus very, very soon. So the updated bias protocols has been really fleshed out, thought about, and concrete. So again, we'll release those and flesh those out and let the campus know. The Intercultural Center, we have received the grant for that. So we have the funding. It's just a matter of next, you know, getting the contractors and start to break ground for that. And that's, I I would say, a huge area and strength and growth that we can physically see. It doesn't seem like it's not happening because we're not on campus. We can't see it. But that's that's huge within a year to say, hey, we need this center. Everyone really came together and with the help of student affairs and advancement, we're able to find the funding for the Intercultural Center. With Dean Harvey in the role of the provost, he's very much aware on the curriculum and academic side what needs to happen for diversity efforts and initiatives. So again, the administration, when they are moving forward, they're not treating diversity as a checkoff, but more so as an inclusive progression that needs to happen for the campus. This center will provide rooms and locations where students can actually gather and hang out. Actually, will have some curriculum, not curriculum programming to it, but it will have space where we can do curriculum programming. So where my office sits now in Caroline, in Caroline House, we can't really have that center feel because it just doesn't provide the space for it. So you have the Center for the Study of Black Culture and then you have administrators' offices. With the Intercultural Center, you have a conference room, you have a computer lab, You'll have office space for multicultural organizations. You have the director's office there. You have a prayer room, gender neutral bathrooms. You'll have the Center for the Study of Black Culture. So you actually will have a brick and mortar physical location that is the safe space. You don't have to worry about anyone else borrowing the space at the same time, but you'll have your actual safe space where you can convene. Definitely a lot. It's more enriched than just a safe space. The Intercultural Center is a safe space. It is a space that students can call their own. Other intercultural or multicultural centers that I am aware of, you know, students, again, it's their home away from home. So we'll still have that feel of student conglomerates and meeting and just where student interactions and engagements can happen. Briefly taking us out of the Washington College campus and into what has been happening, what we have witnessed in the news time and time again concerning the recent Black Lives Matter protests, as well as the deaths and lack of justice that have regarded Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Walter White. How do we at Washington College talk about this further? 
what is important, again, to keep in mind, aside from collaboration and critical thinking? I think it's not shying away from conversations. I think it is including active listening. And sometimes when you have people who might not have the same ideologies as you share, but it's also just being respectful and have that active listening voice. I think in communications is kind of happening forever. We don't hear each other. We don't understand why, how someone arrived to that point. And we approach conversations ready to respond instead of ready and being available to listen. So I think, again, is not shying away from these conversations, but always, always say lead with love, uh, have active listening. And if you feel like you want to create more policies, find a, a group, maybe join forces with the Social Action Committee for Race and Justice in Chestertown. They are a community that is very much grassroots, very connected with the community, the people of the community and to make social change within Chestertown. So they're having these political meetings with the mayor, with the police chief. So I think that is definitely one way if you want to remove yourself beyond the community is get involved in the local level. You know, find an activist that you align with. Any, any donation helps. So if you can donate a dollar to these groups, help fund and donate. See about if there's something that happens very close to home, seeing how maybe an activist or maybe just showing a TED talk with your core group of people on what's happening. It seems like there's an up, uprising of these of this police brutality happen. In actuality, it's not. It's just that we have a camera to shed light on them now and the power of social media. So really use social media for its good, you know? Really use it to promote, create awareness. One of the primary concerns that students of color that I have interviewed have voiced is with the campus having enacted certain policies, including expanding upon diversity, equity, and inclusion on campus, as well as addressing their not-so-inclusive past. One of the main ideas that they kept bringing up was how this needs to continue, that this change needs to keep happening, that to be authentic to them. What do you feel that Washington College can continue to do to make this authentic? I think we're definitely in the awakening phase. The more I verse myself in this field of work, the term woke, it has a, a superficial connotation to it. Because even though if you're woke, that means you doesn't, you're not omniscient, you don't know everything. So I think for Washington College, we're at that awakening, which is a beautiful place to be. Because we're, again, we're open to what can we do more? How can we learn? I can, you know, maybe five years from now, you want to make sure that the students at Washington College, they have a greater experience than you have. So as an alumna of Washington College at one point, you're going to make sure, I know for myself as an alumna of my alma mater, I, we didn't have a student center. So eight years later, once this, the campus has a student center, I was happy that the, the campus has grown that way. And you want to make sure you leave a mark on the campus so that the generation that comes after you has a better experience. So I think it's holding people accountable, people in these places of positions and positions of power, making sure that you're speaking up when things just don't seem right. And even if you're, you know, you're fearful of making a mistake, if you speak up, 
again, I think you're using the concept of leading with love and just say, hey, I hope I'm not making a mistake here. But even if, you know, again, it's holding professors accountable, you know, maybe during that office hour and say, hey, this textbook that we're reading from and learning from, it doesn't have too many diverse perspectives. How can we learn more about diversity? And, you know, I'm just throwing an example out. I'm not saying this is what's happening. How can we learn about diversity in our biology class? We're using all these Eurocentric theories and the world is larger than this one lens. So again, I think it's continuing the conversations, holding people accountable and being the change you want to see. So filling in those gaps. If you're really passionate about having a diverse population on campus, maybe working with the missions or the Georgia's generals and just asking these questions of how can we get more diverse students? You know, maybe I can be a general and as a person of a different culture to help people get here at Washington College. So I think rolling your sleeves up, getting involved, and always just thinking from an inclusive lens. So to briefly bring up the open forum with Dr. Wayne Powell that had happened in October about the plans for the diversity and inclusion on Washington College campus, he said that it is a moral issue that needs to be addressed in order to enact further progress. Do you agree that it's a moral issue? Completely. Completely. Because as it states, the term diversity or inclusion trainings are so divisive. And when you even make it into a political conversation, it becomes divisive. I look at it from an intrinsic perspective. How am I thinking or what actions am I showing that could possibly harm or further systemic racism in our country? So when I think about being accepting of others' differences or even understanding differences, I think it comes back to a lot of our values and our morals. So I do think that it's changing the culture at Washington College. It truly is. And unfortunately, a lot of these spaces that have existed this long is not reflective or mirroring of our country today. So by 2040, they're predicting that 60% of the country will be a country of color. So we have to make sure that we are placing resources and support and we're not isolating people of color, that we're embracing the change, the browning of our country. Because when we leave Washington College, this protective and beautiful campus that we're on, you're going to be faced with people that are a lot different from you are, from how you are. So how do we start teaching students to have that moral courage and to be productive citizens when it comes to embracing diversity? So in terms of being, as you said, inclusive citizens, as being critically mindful of other people around us and how their emotions play into possibly our actions and our own behaviors, With the inclusion of adding safe spaces, allowing people to gather if they feel at any point uncomfortable with everything that's going on, what do you hope students will ultimately take away from their experiences? That they were heard, that they were appreciated, that they were celebrated. I want, and I'm I'm a big fan, and this is a, a point of privilege that I'm arriving to now, I don't like being in spaces where I'm tolerated. I prefer to be where I'm celebrated. And I want the students to have school pride and same type of warm feeling when they think back on Washington College. So I want them to say, hey, I may have been out of the 12 or 18% diverse numbers, but honestly, 
I couldn't tell because I was always celebrated for who I am. And not again to point out that that you're different or you're diverse, but more so, hey, who are you? What can I learn from you? You're, you're someone who I want to learn from, learn with. And that's, I don't want to keep saying different, but different from my own. But again, celebrated and encouraged and embraced. That's how I want students to leave feeling the culture at Washington College. As in this willingness to be open to new experiences and to new people. Willingness, mindfulness. Until we get to a point as a country, we have to be very intentional but I want us to even move past that thought process and that is so second nature. So even thinking about ableism or people with, persons with disabilities, I'm always constantly thinking when I'm entering new buildings, is this accessible for persons in wheelchairs, for paraplegics? You know, and I do my presentations. You know, I try to make sure the font is visible for those who have vision impairments. You know, when I'm doing my audio, can everyone hear from audio impairments? So I'm really thinking again from an inclusive lens. And it just took years of practice, but at first it took just being intentional about it. So I think first it is us being intentional and then to the point it's just second nature. So another point that I had noticed during past interviews was this idea that diversity inclusion as well as mental health also go hand in hand. Could you like elaborate a little bit on that? There are definitely some overlap in diversity and mental health. Because when you think about the discrimination that happens, of course, that's going to impact your mental health if you're a person of color. If you think about the systemic racism and the obstacles and the barriers that are placed upon you as a person of color or a person with a diverse identity, it can impact your mental health. But I wouldn't say they're synonymous. Now, as a mental health professional, for lack of better terms, now, there is social justice and advocacy within mental health, and that's just the helping professional understanding how social justice and advocacy plays in our day-to-day role. But diversity and mental health are not synonymous. I think having that jargon just takes us back to, at one point, being gay was a mental illness. And we're just, we know that's nothing that's mentally ill about same-sex orientation or same-sex affection. So I think that's just another way that discrimination can kind of seep itself into different policies. They can work hand-to-hand. Again, you have to be aware of the discrimination that happens and advocacy that needs to happen for those who are less fortunate or not as privileged, but they're not the same. So with all of this in mind, on the Washington College campus as a whole, do you feel that there has been significant or established change towards how we not only approach and how we talk about including everybody and respecting one another's identities, but also the initiatives that have been taken to really make sure that everybody is included, that everybody is seen and everybody is heard? I think when you move the compass to, like I said, I think we're at this awakening, Washington College is now. So I think in itself that's significant because 10 years ago, that appreciation for inclusion wasn't even part of the conversation. So I think any change that we make to embracing inclusion is a significant change. 
I think about the positions that have been developed at Washington College to make sure that we are becoming an inclusive campus. So for instance, the Associate Director for Multicultural Recruitment and Admissions, solely her job is recruiting multicultural students. So even having from an enrollment standpoint, having someone in place that recruits these types of students, of course, is going to bring diversity to your campus. I think about the Washington Scholars Program, and that's a program that's primarily given to underrepresented students. So that's another avenue or direction that has been thought of that can create uh, change on our campus. The development of the Intercultural Center is another visible change that's going to benefit the entire campus. I think the active BSU that we have, CLEOs, Intercultural Ambassadors, you know, just to name a couple of groups, not take away from any other groups, but their presence have created awareness that staff and faculty are including these conversations. Sumner Hall. So yes, I think there's definitely significant changes. And I'm honestly, I do think there there's more to come. The work is nowhere near finished. I think about the Washington College History Project. That has blossomed and is taking bloom within this last semester, actually. So I think what we're facing as a country that we're just seeing in current events have plateaued and create the foundation of, of things that we can do better with at Washington College. So I do think there has been significant change and we'll see more significant change as time comes. From my purview, Dean Harvey and interim President Powell are very aware. They're very mindful and appreciative of diversity efforts, and they really want to make it an inclusive campus. So having that support from a leadership standpoint is amazing. So there has been significant change, and I think there's even more to come as we unfold these next couple of years. Well, Carice, thank you so much for coming. We appreciate it. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to chat on the podcast. Now, please welcome with me our second guest today, Emerald Stacy, Assistant Professor of Mathematics here at WAC, as well as an affiliate with the Justice, Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion, otherwise known as JEDI, initiative program. Professor Stacy, welcome. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, how would you describe your position at Washington College? Oh, delightfully. I'm a a third-year professor in the math department, but I also teach through the first-year seminar program. I'm the chair of the diversity committee for this year, and I am leading the JEDI initiative, which is a, a collaborative, sustainable training program around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So with the trial runs of the JEDI workshops that are coming up these next coming weeks, how did the idea for these workshops come about? So in the letter of demands from BSU last spring, one of the requests was for kind of ongoing training around diversity. Before I came here to Washington College, I was at Oregon State as a graduate student. And while I was there, I did a minor in women, gender, and sexuality studies. And I also developed our graduate teaching assistant training for incoming graduate students who are going to be in the classroom. 
So that was a, a, depending on the year, it was a one or two day event that we ran for about 400 graduate students. And I trained a team of graduate students to develop these sessions that would be run during that orientation and training. Those sessions, some of them were around inclusivity, others were around pedagogy and teaching and, you know, how to establish classroom norms. But I'm really ran Jedi, I'm running Jedi kind of based on that model of, you know, I gathered a team, we worked together to identify what sessions we wanted to build, broke up into smaller teams, and then each team really collaboratively is building each session. Um, So there's five sessions coming. Some of these titles are going to change. They're still working titles, but we have one on intersectionality, one on mitigating microaggressions, even though there's nothing micro about them, one on anti-racism, courageous conversations, and trauma-induced health disparities. So when forming these workshops, what was important to keep in mind when creating which topics you were going to discuss and how you were going to talk about them? So it was really important to me that the teams be passionate. And that could be people were coming to a topic because they knew a lot about it already and were really interested in it. Or it could mean that they didn't know a lot about it and really wanted to get to know more. I really want this to be something where to become part of it, you do not have to be an expert. You do not have to know a lot. You can be part of it. You can be part of building it, regardless of where you are on your your own path. So, you know, when we're collaborating, creating these, nobody is an expert in the room. You know, we're looking at what experts say. We're looking at what other schools are doing, what other trainings are doing. How do we think that might look at WAC, knowing our student body and our faculty? You know, what could be a good fit here? So without giving too much away as to what the workshops will consist of, what can participants expect during each workshop? So the workshops are going to be capped at 15 people. These are are small sessions. I like to think of it as like the craft brewery of diversity trainings. These are small and really well curated. And the facilitators will have agency throughout the sessions to pivot and adapt to what happens in the session. So my goal is in each session that like really juicy, good conversation happen. And so we've designed workshops to hopefully create a space for that conversation to happen. And there will be information and activities that might that we're hoping to lead there. But everybody who's facilitating it has some options that they can actually change mid-session to be, to be like, oh, this is where the conversation is going. Like, this would be more appropriate. You know, if in the first activity, you know, if you have three activities planned, but the first activity, the discussion is robust and really great stuff is happening. Like we don't have to keep moving forward with our curriculum if we're already doing the work right there. In terms of a time for those who are willing to participate in these trial runs of these workshops, is there any way that they can prepare ahead of time or how can they prepare ahead of time to further contribute to the conversation? So I'm hopeful that everybody will have had access to the EverFi training which I know students have all had access to and where we don't yet have access for all faculty and staff. But the assumption was that everybody will have been through that to have kind of a baseline 
vocabulary and language and, and some things that we can, as a group, reference back to. But other than that, it's really come as you are. I mean, the, the, one of the, the big ideas and the values that's undermining, underpinning everything is that a lot of this knowledge everybody already has. They just might not know, they might not be comfortable with it. They might not be comfortable talking about it. They might not be comfortable acting. You know, for example, in our, our mitigating microaggression session, we're going to talk about like, what do you do as a bystander? Like, what do you do when you watch something happen that's not okay? And I think it's really common for people to freeze. I think I freeze. But I think we might all know what we're supposed to do. So we'll practice that. We'll come up with some like go-tos. So for example, a really common one is, oh, say more. So like, let's say, let's say you say something that's maybe a bit off color. And I'm like, ooh, ooh, did you, oh, will you, will you say more about that, please? And at that point, you could be like, you know what, as soon as the words were out of my mouth, I realized I shouldn't have said it that way. This is the way I should have said it. And like, it's all cleared up. Or you could like dig down and be like, oh no, I really, I really, really think that like to be a good mathematician, you really, you gotta be a dude. I just, I just don't think women can do it, right? Like, like there are things you can do to really kind of like open up and and get to kind of more the core of the issue. And so there are these like kind of go-to techniques we can use that we'll be, we'll be going through and practicing in the session. So with the trial runs of the specific Courageous Conversations and Mitigating Microaggressions workshops, what was vital to keep in mind when approaching having those specific conversations when regarding how to talk about race and how to talk about what to do when you witness a microaggression? I think it's really important to recognize that a lot of people are learning how to talk about really difficult topics that have been off the table. So we're learning how to do it. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be perfect. Nobody's going to leave one of these sessions with like, ah, I am now completely 100% woke. That's not the goal. The goal is to just like push it one step further and provide the community with a vocabulary to talk to each other about it. Honestly, I think one of my biggest goals with Jedi was to have conversations take place. And I think even already, before we've even launched a session, before we've even done a first trial run, that's happening. People are asking me about it. They're talking to each other about it. People are asking how to get involved. That's awesome. We already have over 50 people who have helped in one way or another, which is absolutely fantastic. We're doing surveys at the end of each session to get some feedback and, and determine, you know, what's effective and how we can be most effective. And Alicia Cosma had her research methods class do the survey design. So every member of that class is now part of the Jedi Collective, just as are all of the collaborators who've built the current sessions. So with these specific trial runs, what do you hope to accomplish with having kind of like this practice in preparation for the actual runs of these workshops? We need to learn more about timing. So we have kind of ideas of how long we think each part's going to take. But, you know, as an educator, I know that that certainly doesn't always go to plan, right? How many times have you seen a teacher be like, ooh, I'm out of stuff early, or ooh, I didn't get to everything I wanted to get to, right? Like, this is a learning process, and the more often 
you run through it, the better you get at those that timing. So that's one of the pieces. We also want to make sure that there's not something that like we have blind spots to. Right. So, for example, in the mitigating microaggression session, it was pretty recent that we realized we needed a definition slide. We need to define microaggression. Um, and luckily we caught that and it's in the session now. But that was something that could have come out in the trial run, which was like, obviously, we need to define microaggression in the beginning of that session. But when you're in the thick of it, you might not see that. So we want to look at timing. We want to really build confidence in the facilitators. It is usually faculty members are experts in their field whenever they get up in front of anybody. And right now we are asking faculty and staff members to get up in front of people and facilitate sessions that they're not experts in. And that's a little uncomfortable. So we're working on really building confidence you know, going through this trial run in what I hope is a really loving, kind environment. So the people who've been invited to the trial runs are anybody who's worked on JEDI and group of student leaders that has asked to be part of it that's working with intercultural affairs. So there's a, there's a list of about 10 or 15 students who have also been asked to come. And the faculty have asked there to be like lots of caveats of like, please recognize this is a first draft. Please be kind. Please recognize that like everybody is a little scared. But I think, I think they're coming along really well. I think they're going to be fantastic. I think that the trial run session is going to be very different from what these sessions look like in a year. I'm really excited to see how they develop as different facilitators come and go throughout the process. I imagine they will evolve to more match whoever's currently working with the sessions. And we're already starting to put together what's coming up next. And then I know at least one session will be on neurodiversity. What other topics would you be considering for future workshops? We have a list of 18 topics that we chose for this round. So we would look back to that list. So we started by just like brainstorming a, a huge list of topics for what we could do. And then I had everybody kind of select what they'd be interested in doing. And again, they could choose because they're good at it or they could choose because they're not good at it. If, you know, perhaps somebody knows that they are notoriously bad at intervening with microaggressions. So they're like, I'm going to facilitate the microaggression session. I'm going to get good at this. So that's how these first five were really chosen based on, on what the teams wanted to do and were interested in creating. It's all volunteer-based. So I didn't want people to be in a situation where they had to, they were volunteering their time to do a session that they weren't interested in. Each person on the team has to devote to build a session devotes about 20 hours. And, it, and that really could be more. When taking into account both what has happened on and off the Washington College campus with both last semester and with this past summer, both in terms of incidents and responses to those incidents, what do you hope those who participate in not only these trial runs, but in the finalized version of these workshops gain from taking part in these experiences? I really hope that there's a bigger awareness of why bias incidents are a problem. Right? I think like the first step is really to acknowledge that they're happening. And I feel like as a campus, we've done that. We've acknowledged that they're happening, but there's still some like work to do around, we really have to stop it. Like it's really not okay. And it is up to all of us to help 
hold that line. You know, whether that's when you see something, you do something, or how do you support your fellow students of color when they go through something? Like, what does support actually look like? And I think JEDI is really just one part of coming up with a campus-wide solution. So after the trial run and the feedback has been recognized and then taken into account for the finalized versions of these workshops, what do you hope the next steps will be? Like, what do you hope will become of this project at Washington College? So starting in spring, where we go live, sessions will be offered in a variety of ways. People will be able to sign up for cohorts. So for example, we might have like a Thursday 6 p.m. session where every other Thursday or every Thursday for five weeks at 6 p.m., one of the sessions gets run and the same group of 15 people go through all these sessions. So, you know, by the end, that group of people is pretty comfortable talking to each other about uncomfortable topics. Um, We will also have sessions that you can sign up for just one of random throughout the day at a variety of times so you can kind of piece it together and will be available to be requested. Let's say you're part of a club and your club wants to do a session on trauma-related health disparities. You know, you could be like, hey, is there a time when you could come, someone could come and facilitate that session for my club? And we could kind of deploy it to that or to a classroom. You know, let's say a professor is going to talk about something and they're a little nervous about it or, you know, want to have a little bit of training for their class beforehand. They can build into the syllabus a JEDI session that some of us would come and facilitate in the classroom. Currently, we are planning all of them to be completely on Zoom. I don't want to worry about doing some any hybrid model. I think that there are some benefits to Zoom. There are also benefits to doing it in person, but right now we're designing them with the benefits of Zoom in place. So for example, there might be Google Docs that you're accessing during a session, which would be more awkward in person. In person, we would probably have like printed out copies of worksheets and whatnot. For the eventuality that at some point we will return to campus, at some point there will be some form of a solution for us to resume in-person learning or have some sort of hybridity model where we can both learn online and in-person. What do you think those in-person workshops could look like or have the potential to look like? So in my mind, they take place in like the Sophie Kerr room in the library where you have like that big, nice room to like get into small groups and then come back together. So I imagine it taking place in something like that or the Lit House. I love the Lit House. I always teach my calculus classes in the Lit House. But some sort of a space that's a little bit comfy, a little less classroomish necessarily, just so that we're creating a physical space that has people feeling comfortable. But again, I think that we would cap it at still at about 15 people, right? If you think about the classes you take, there's a real difference between a 15-person class and a 25-person class. And so I, I really want to kind of harness the goodness of the small classroom model in in JEDI and not do auditoriums. Well, Professor Stacy, thank you so much for coming. We so much appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. On Thursday, November 12th, the Intercultural Affairs Office sent out a campus-wide email announcing updates to the Identifying and Reporting Bias Incidents Protocol on campus. This will encompass the inclusion of the on-campus bias education response team, otherwise known as BERT, which, according to the email written by Carice Bates, 
aims to foster a safe and inclusive environment by providing advocacy and education for individuals who have committed a bias incident or acts of discrimination. These initiatives will include making recommendations to college leaders on how to best encourage and keep the campus community inclusive, arrange an annual report of bias incidents, and administering information regarding how to define a bias incident. To report an incident or to raise additional concerns, available resources include Intercultural Affairs, the Student Affairs Office, and Public Safety, as well as the titular webpage on the Washington College website or submitting a care report. This has been Washington College Weekly. I'm Olivia Montez, and I will see you next week.